Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton. And as you know, this is a program for people who want to learn more about our interior lives. And in the last year, the topic of diversity and inclusion has finally moved to the forefront of conversation at most companies, which is where it's needed to be for decades. Because without true change, our workforces are going to grow stagnant and they're going to fail to represent who we are as a nation. Worse yet, our understanding of one another is going to remain stuck in these old paradigms and outdated ideas. So how do we actually move from the talk to the walk? This is thrilling today for me to be able to host one of the most dynamic and unbelievable experts on this topic. He's the Vice President of Diversity and Inclusion at Nike, and he oversees a team focused on acquiring new talent capabilities for the company and driving large programs, partnerships, and initiatives that are aimed at impacting representation and accelerating the flow of diverse talent pipelines. In this capacity, he collaborates closely with key stakeholders and partner organizations internally and externally. And of course, he has done so much prior to Nike. At the head of Stat, SNAP, he was accountable for building the company's first ever DI strategy, and he established the first five employee resource groups and partnered with LD to develop the company's initial iteration of the global unconscious bias awareness and implicit association training. Before that, he worked at Google as a channel specialist, diversity program manager with significant domestic and global experience. I think of no one that I'd have more pleasure talking about this topic with than today, Jarvis Sam. Hi, Jarvis. So good to see you. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Sheila. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate the very sound introduction. And with so much continuing to happen in the world and a sheer need for us to address this topic head on, I could not be more thrilled to join you on the show today. Well, I want to go right into the current news because I think we've moved from one crisis to the next. And right now, it seems that the Asian population is the population that is really threatened. Can you tell me about the recent meetings that you've been attended talking about the Asian American experience in America right now? Absolutely. So unfortunately, the Asian American experience is one very similar to how we described during the, the moments following the May 25th, 2020 death of George Floyd of the, the Black community, where while this moment marked an, an epoch opportunity for us to begin conversation about this topic, is an experience that Asian Americans have been enduring for decades. When you look to the literature and background from mid-19th century Chinese exclusion acts to efforts put in place around internment camps for Japanese individuals just following World War II, the experiences of these populations continues to be one that's shrouded in an ethos of racism and inherent xenophobia. Mm -hmm. Pair that with, of course, the intrinsic challenges that we saw coming out of 9-11, where focuses on phobias against individuals from the Middle East and significant Islamophobia continue to persist. This is all, though, captured with this rhetoric and ethos that has surrounded the community for years. The idea of terming this group as model minorities, where we're positioning elements of stereotype threat assigned or aligned to the community. And now to see this impact happening directly connected to virulently violent behavior against this population and community, it continues to show that the struggle of this population is one, not that it is marked by moments post-negative rhetoric associated with COVID-19 or coronavirus, but one that has persisted for decades and is now finally coming to life with a true opportunity for us to think about the real impact that we as allies need to have 
to not only educate ourselves, but focus on cultural intelligence and cultural awareness of the unique experiences of Asian Americans. As a news person, and I've been in the news business, Jarvis, for more than 30 years, that this story is not reaching as many Americans as the George Floyd protests, as the kind of systemic racism that we were encountering in the Black community. What is the difference in terms of the way the news is parsing this? You know, I think we've talked for a long time about this conception that representation matters. And for Asian Americans, particularly if you look at the various pervasive nature of different industries, whether media, entertainment, or sports, Asian representation has remained minuscule for a number of years. I remember a celebration just a couple of years back with the release of the Hollywood production Crazy Rich Asians, because what it featured was an opportunity for us to actually see and hear and experience a vantage point of a narrative told for and by Asian American communities. Mm. It's been a constant challenge as we think about the way the history and perspectives of Asian Americans has been revealed in this country, yeah. presenting a unique opportunity for us to tell their stories and to highlight the impact both from primary source and secondary source data in a clear and pronounced way. The biggest difference with that of experiences of African American populations is there's such an entrenched history of racism dating far back to 17th century and beyond of the racial and cultural history of the Black community in this country. And where we begin to see this constant connection point between what racist policing may look like or direct experiences that the Black community has had in interacting and integrating with the law uh, created a bit of a different experience. Because what we're talking about is both groups are being negatively impacted by uh, illicit intent associated with white supremacy. And yet the way that that's showing up looks different because you're talking about one population with the black community that has for years been vilified, whether in the representation in media, how we're often presented or shown up, all the way to the continued demonization and weaponization of the body of the black male yeah. versus rhetoric associated with a population that has for years been deemed as the silent minority or the model minority. Yeah. And so there's an opportunity for us to continue to highlight even more these continued actions of violence against them. Oh, I'm so glad I got to talk with you about this. This has been on my mind now for so many weeks and I've had nobody tell me the answer to that question. So thank <laughs> you very much. I just wanna get back to the basis of our program. We're trying to improve the mental health and well-being of our listeners. And I think people get lost on why diversity and inclusion is so important to our well-being. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. So I'll start actually with the latter. When we think about the conversation of inclusion and belonging and what it means to driving not only just corporate cultures, but how each of us shows up in the world every single day, there is such a huge opportunity for us to focus on this concept of psychological safety. You see, when people are put into places or experiences where they don't feel that they belong, it, it has the same type of emotional, psychological, and mental triggers associated with physical pain. And so it creates an opportunity where when we think about mindfulness, meditation, and the connection to actually thinking about ways of life in a mindful manner, if we don't feel that sense of belonging, we end up feeling lost or without opportunity to actively engage. When you apply this in corporate spaces, it doesn't enable communities to be able to show up as their best selves, so to speak, because they're continuing to grapple with both the stressors associated with doing their job, pair that with navigating a global pandemic where it's unclear if we're working from home or living at work, and then add on to that the impact of actually having to navigate elements of marginalization in the outside world, it creates a space where 
as you're attempting to drive or strive for a culture of belonging, it's getting lost in your ability to maintain mindful composure along the way. Furthermore, though, when we think about the connection to diversity, diversity is often focused on that representation of both the visible and invisible characteristics that make each and every one of us unique. However, as any sociologist, anthropologist, or social scientist in general can tell you, when we as humans connect in groups, it creates an opportunity where we focus on likeness. We tend to focus on sameness, and it creates a level of safety for us. However, where real innovation is driven is when we are brought together into those diverse groups or diverse spaces. Being mindful in this regard, though, means that I have representation where I'm experiencing common practice of others that are similar to myself, while also relishing in the great benefits of what it truly means to not only just value, but celebrate difference. You know, um, everything you were saying, I was nodding my head along with, except for the fact that we're all in these remote things. And like, how do we get over all of the weirdness of this remote setting in order to actually see you, to accept you, to envelop all of the ideas that you're bringing to the table? I mean, I think that remote work has probably put more obstacles up to DNI, hasn't it? You know, it's an interesting construct, Sheila, and I'll actually address it from two key perspectives. The first of which is a critical point of privilege that we have to talk about. The fact that, you know, you and I are talking to each other from our own living rooms at this point is certainly a point of privilege with the ability to do our work from home. When we think about the essential worker population, a large majority of which represent marginalized populations or minority communities in America, as we talk about what it feels like or what it means to work remotely, This is an experience that a lot of these communities are not able to enjoy right now. It's a point of privilege that that I'm very conscious of as we describe remote working, because these folks are still out there risking their lives, whether it's in healthcare or medicine, fast food, social, bars and restaurants, et cetera, to support the lives of many of us who do have that uh, availability or amenity to work from home. And so on the second part, for for those that do enjoy that privilege of remote working right now, I I think it's very interesting in that COVID-19 has actually positioned a great equalizer in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. because it's positioned an opportunity that albeit your situation or circumstance, we all now have uh, what, what at one point seemed like an invitation, whether open or closed, an invitation into each other's homes, into each other's spaces. Mm -hmm. And so it has posed an opportunity where we are seeing people's kids on Zooms yeah. and in on Google Chat. We're seeing people's pets. We're seeing people as they go through their day-to-day life. And so it creates a level of equity in that regard. However, we have to recall that the burden of impact, particularly on women when it comes to raising children, has only been continually heightened as we all continue to navigate COVID-19. Yeah. And so it's created such a disparity that only time will tell of the impact that it's going to have in in women's representation in the workplace. And I sure hope that as we all continue to navigate this, we'll we'll see the pendulum swing in the right direction where we can actually see greater equity in how parenting is happening in the home as we navigate COVID-19 so that we can continue some clearly forthright efforts that many companies are looking to launch around uh, women in the workplace. You know, one of the reasons that I I think you're perfect for this show is that I have been on so many conferences and so many long calls around diversity and inclusion. And it's a lot of talking and it's very little progress from my point of view. Yeah. When you're talking to people about 
what we can do to actually move from the talk to the walk, what are the things you tell them must be done? There's a couple of things. So I have been describing a four-pronged approach that I often utilize in training leaders in this work. And it really starts with education, Sheila. We have to take the time to educate ourselves in the culture of others. Oftentimes, people immediately jump to action. We saw a lot of this happen in the summer and fall of last year, but the action tends to take on a perspective that amplifies or reifies in a lot of ways white knighting, white saviorship, and continues to put privilege at the fore, where people aren't actually taking a step back to say, let me understand my shortcomings in my knowledge or understanding of this community to really define the role that I play. And quite frankly, have that vulnerable moment where I identify where I may have been complicit in the marginalization of others. Number two, then focuses on understanding. Take the new knowledge that you've defined and seek to piece together certain connection points. Understand that the current experiences of Black men in this country and how we're viewed is not something that just started or, or happened post the death of individuals like Trayvon Martin, Trayford Pellerin, George Floyd. Yeah. This is an experience that has been built up by centuries rooted in the fact that our Black bodies have for years been dehumanized, have been subjugated, and that Black populations in America have continually been viewed or treated as second-class citizens. Mm. Draw those connections and understand that socioeconomic imperities, inequities associated directly with healthcare, not only from access to healthcare, but also healthcare distribution, mm. all of those are part of a connected flow to what the Black experience in America looks like. And don't even add to the fact of the prison industrial complex and the yeah. key challenges and impact that that has on the lives yeah. of Black men. Once that understanding happens, we then move to piece three, which centers around empathy. You see, I've had a ton of conversations over the last couple of decades, Sheila, with folks around how they connect with marginalized communities different from themselves. But far too often, I see people focusing heavily on sympathy. They position their actions out of feeling sorry for marginalized wow. communities, as opposed to actually demonstrating uh, empathic connection with the other person, taking a truly humanistic approach and saying, I am vulnerable in knowing what I don't know. It's an admission of ignorance mm. and learning and seeking to understand more about an individual's journey, not just as window dressing and not just to make ourselves feel better about ourselves, mm. but as a sole purpose of uncovering certain elements of privilege that we personally enjoy. And from there, you get to that fourth and final approach, action. Mm. This is where the demonstration of true and active allyship can happen because you're entering from a space where you've let your guards down. You've understood your privilege in a keen way. And now you know how to utilize that privilege to powerfully impact the experiences of others that do not enjoy the same attributes a privilege as yourself. And I think that many companies demonstrated in the last year their interest in the education piece and the empathy yeah. piece. Have they moved to the actual action piece? And if so, how has it shown up? You know, I've seen a variety of different approaches taken at many companies, Sheila. I think it, following the May 25th moment, there were so many companies that immediately pivoted to action. Yeah. And it was uninformed action, it was misinformed action. And mm -hmm. For, for, for Black Americans that were watching, it was very much a turnoff. It was very much like, this yeah, is that's not, not going to last. Work. Absolutely. <laughs> right. and, and it was incongruent with the experiences that, that we felt. Mm. 
And yeah. so there was a real opportunity for companies to take a step back and go through that journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there were others that actually started with the education. But, but look, education is more than watching films like The Blind Side or The Help on Netflix, because the white savior narrative that's embodied in films like that actually doesn't help us to progress to the space that we want to. Well, What's and more, besides, it's very inaccurate, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. And then, you know, I saw an uptick in a lot of leaders reading more and and taking into account more literature that that helps amplify cultural intelligence. And I think that's the right approach. However, then when they go to that understanding piece, absent the level of authenticity and vulnerability, you're never going to be successful. Mm. Companies and individuals have to be willing to highlight or say, here is where I may have been complicit with these challenges previously. I, I saw a great quote a couple of weeks back, Sheila, that highlights Individuals that identify as heterosexuals are inherently benefactors of heteronormativity. It does not mean that they are homophobic or transphobic. However, you got to recognize that you are still a benefactor of that privilege. And then you extend from that by saying, now that I know the role that I play in navigating and, and amplifying this privilege in some ways, how do I extend that to ensure power? for individuals that may not identify or may not be benefactors of said privilege. I've just agreed so wholeheartedly with everything you've said, but it's occurred to me that unless your C-suite is truly buying in on all four of those steps, you're never going to have a strategy that really transforms a company. Because if you think about it, I don't want to make generalizations, but throughout history, we've elevated a lot of white men to the C-suite. And they're the people most threatened by what you're proposing here. So how do you bring their buy-in? We have to position it uh, accordingly, Sheila, that it's not a zero-sum game. To be clear, to do this work in the right way is trying to get us closer toward the idealistic or even stylized meritocracy, which we know in and of itself uh, can't truly exist in a world where some populations are privileged than others. There's far too many hoops and obstacles to work through. And so where we have to position this to to people, particularly cisgendered straight white males, is there is an opportunity to know that there is an imbalance of privilege. And it really is how do you leverage the elements of privilege that you have to impact the lives of others and the experiences of others. What we want to be conscious or cautious of is it's not taking that privilege and saying, let me position or simply elevate this group or population because I want to. Rather, there has to be that learning journey or that learning experience Mm -hmm. that gets people there. It has to be an understanding from folks that you existing in your position of power right now, and that's the essence of privilege, is because of something that you did not necessarily do on your own. There are certain elements built in. Yeah, it's like there are certain elements built into the infrastructure of your experience from the very beginning that enables you to be a benefactor. I also just love Bono's quote about it's it's the accident of latitude and longitude. I mean, you yes. think about how many of our privileges come just because of the beautiful place we're born, right? Yeah, um, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by your work. And I'm wondering, just from a personal point of view, if you feel more heartened by what's happened in the last 18 months or less heartened in some ways because there was this enormous opportunity and did you see enough occur? Yeah, 
I am a serial optimist. And so I will undoubtedly say I'm, I'm more heartened by it mm. because I'm seeing responses show up different. I'm seeing people have big conversations about key topics like anti-racism, like white privilege, like white fragility, like intersectionality. Mm-hmm. Words that for years, uh, for folks that, that work in the space that I do, were part of our lexicon and common vernacular, but for others required a whole series of explanations and arguably uh, uh, academic dissertation to actually get people to, to e- even seek to understand. And now we're in a space where I'm hearing those terms being utilized properly, that is, by individuals who for years may not have ever even thought of their significance or thought of their importance. And so that seems to imply to me that the education is happening and that it's not just tacit engagement or tacit listening. There's actually an active approach for how people are are pushing the agenda forward. Where I think that there's still that stall just a bit, Sheila, is understanding. And that's because the understanding is very hard because if people truly want to just jump to the action, sympathy will carry you along the way. You'll say, because I feel the need to do something for this population, I'm just going to go. But not facing the music with that understanding Mm. is incredibly problematic because you then still show up either inauthentic or uh, people just don't believe your experiences Mm. and they don't believe the journey that you've been on is actually uh, of value. And so that's the big area that I'm watching out for. Yeah, or worse yet, your fatigue from what yes. is perceived as a gift just runs yes. short. You know, yes. it's like every time you go to the grocery store and you're asked to give the extra dollar for the same organization, and suddenly you ask the question, like, where is this going and is it doing anything? You know, yep. Yep. if you're not really giving out a place of informed consent, of really understanding yep. it, you lose the passion for doing it. So truly, I really, I love that analogy. So I want to ask you about, I think one thing that I've heard from white allies is I have been so afraid of doing and saying the wrong thing. Why is it that we do and say the wrong thing? And how can we possibly learn not to do and say the wrong thing? Yeah, you know, Sheila, much of it comes from uh, a deeply uninformed perspective. And, and the big piece that I often ask people is, what actions or steps are you taking to actually engage in those uncomfortable conversations? I'll give you an example of how I do this. Uh, just uh, in the fall of last year, I began by taking a couple of focus groups over Zoom, and I would ask people a series of questions, including, how many of you all have posted about Black Lives Matter on any form of social? Facebook, mm-hmm. Twitter, Pinterest, Snapchat, or otherwise. You typically see a couple of hands go up. How many of you all have a Black Lives Matter sign in your yard or a bumper sticker on your car? Hmm. See a couple of other hands go up. Finally, how many of you all have had a conversation with friends, family, relatives, or otherwise about the Black Lives Matter movement? Hmm. You typically will see the majority, if not 100% of hands go up. Now, most of those folks are telling the truth and a couple of other folks just don't want to feel left out of the conversation. Hmm. However, Sheila, I then do a series of follow-up questions that typically go according like this. If you're married, how many of you all had at least three Black people at your wedding? You typically see faces change and hands go down. Follow up. How many of you all had at least three Black people at your last either virtual happy hour or in-person moment last year? Mm. You tend to see more hands go down. Finally, if you were to throw a social gathering today outside of individuals that you work with or went to college or university with, can you identify at least two Black individuals that you would invite? 
You typically see nearly 70% of the hands go down in the room. And what I utilize that illustration to highlight, Sheila, is we do not surround ourselves by the uncomfortable moments or uncomfortable situations that is actually going to lead to effective and proper education. And so people fear saying the wrong thing because you've not put yourself in the proximity of impact to actually have these discussions directly with Black individuals, or what's more, to see the experiences of Black individuals in real life, in real time. And it's not just an experience for the Black community, it's largely all marginalized communities. Mm -hmm. It is a perspective that until you have surrounded yourself with LGBTQ plus identified individuals, then yes, you are going to feel that you lack the know-how or the education of what effective pronoun utilization looks like to not say the wrong thing. Until you've surrounded yourself with individuals of indigenous or American Indian experiences, you cannot truly experience the point of view of the other. Yeah. And so there's a big opportunity for us to actually place ourselves in the, the right situation to be able to navigate that. And oh. then the fear will go away. And I, I find it to be so interesting, Sheila, because we focus our attention on I don't want to say the wrong thing when it comes to things like race, sexual yeah. orientation, gender identity, etc. And yet people are so comfortable saying the wrong thing in certain spaces associated with like politics, religion or otherwise. And so it's an identity question that we have to continue to navigate and think about the role that we play. So in Portland, Oregon, it is 90% white. It is very difficult to, 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 you know, find black friends. I would love to have more black friends. I have had black friends say it's, you know, it's really fine because we're as uncomfortable coming to your house as you would be coming to ours, (laughs) that there is a way, uh, a comfort among people of our own race, of our own genders. It's a comforting thing. How do you bust past comfort, Jarvis? I'm, I'm fascinated by that. There are two key areas that I want to talk about here, Sheila. I think the first of which is we surround ourselves in these spaces of comfort because uh, affinity bias and proximity bias enables us to do that. It creates mm-hmm. a space of psychological safety where if people have those shared experiences as ourselves, it enables us to think through how we'll show up. And quite frankly, at times it allows us to let our guards down around what we're exposed to or certain conversations that are had. So the first piece that I'll talk about is to me, that's the true test of allyship. It is when a white individual is surrounded exclusively by other white identified individuals or those not from black representation. And you hear those certain words or those certain stereotypes that that come about. Are you going to risk power, privilege, friendship in that moment by checking that behavior? I agree. If you are a heterosexual individual or a cisgendered individual and you hear someone say something that's homophobic or transphobic and there's no one from that community around, Mm. are you going to speak out about it? That becomes a true test. The second piece that we'll talk about there, Sheila, is people have to get more comfortable living and existing in the discomfort. However, that doesn't mean going around and seeking out uh, marginalized communities just to add them to a UN of sorts. 
of, of your yeah. career. A more interesting and, table. Yeah, I get it. Exactly. <laughs> and, and I have seen people take this mosaic style approach, Sheila, and, yeah. and I have been part of some of those conversations That's and awkward. rejected the invitation many, many times. Uh, but, but I think there is an organic way to do it. And again, you know, it, it yeah. starts with that concept uh, of education is if you are taking the time to seek to understand and learn about others, it creates a moment where you're diversifying your own experiences. Here's a prime example. People often ask me, what are things that they can do to do better, to be better, to act better? And I tell them, it's not a tough lift in the beginning. There actually is a pretty simple solution. We all have to eat. A lot of folks are using digital apps and platforms like Grubhub yeah. and Postmates to order food. Shift where you order from for one night. Oh, I love and that. And order from a black, small, and medium-owned business or restaurant mm. in your own town, as opposed to consuming the same type of media on mm. Hulu, Netflix, Disney Plus. Take some time for you, your children, and your relatives to consume info, medium from a different love cultural that. vantage point. Take a look and assessment and audit of sorts of all of the current actions in your own life and figure out how are you constantly in a cycle or a flow that only reifies your own point of view or perspective. And mm. that's where the difference is. Oh, I just want to let that sink in because I am going to like implement that right away. I'll tell you also, you know, for me, Jarvis, is I did that sort of year of education and understanding and a tremendous empathy about all the mistakes I made, both for me and the people that might have been passed by because of my decisions. And I decided to bring on two psychologists who are both black and on our team. I can't tell you the difference in quality, in breadth, in bigness, in worldliness. I, I just feel like we have an entirely different team now because of diversifying our team. And we wouldn't have done it if not for the last year. So there's a way in which it really has been, if you can get to that action point and it does feel significant and it feels authentic, yeah. where it really does change your life in such a beautiful way. Yeah, yeah, it's so real, Sheila. And you know, I, I see a lot of teams, sometimes a lot of companies uh, putting in place different approaches or provisions aimed around hiring, developing, or, or retaining diverse talent. And oftentimes it's done, though, with an aura of tokenism. And, and at the yeah. end of the day, there are amazingly qualified diverse professionals. So when you hear folks say, oh, pipelines are so limited or this or that, uh, you know, how are you indicting or looking at your own perspectives as a company for yeah. where or how you might be influencing or informing bias that negatively impacts these populations. Right. And so we have to ensure that our approach to diversity, equity, and inclusion is done in a forthright manner and with the right level of intentionality, where we're not just going and seeking out talent populations because of who they are, but that we're truly understanding the amount of innovation that will be spurred by bringing these populations in and to the table. Yeah. And, and that's where you find the big difference, Sheila, is it's not just having folks at the table, it's giving them a voice in the conversation, but it's a voice that's listened to, that's utilized, and where people are able to make real tried and true impact. Yeah, it's fantastic. So I want to talk once again a little bit about people in positions of power. What is one vow that every executive could take with regards to seeing this effort through to something that would be as extraordinary and hopeful as it has been for me? 
Spend time with diverse employees at your company and demonstrate a listening ear. Understand the perspective though by which you're entering. You are coming in with a perspective of privilege and power. And so that can be slightly disarming for a, a lot of marginalized communities and can lead to significantly defensive postures. So enter with a space of vulnerability and authenticity. Make it super clear that while you may have expertise and knowledge in the business and operations and product side of this company or industry, that there may be a gap in your knowledge culturally of that population. Enter with an approach of seeking to learn, vividly listen to the experiences of these populations, and then commit to action. But with that committing to action, make sure that it's done in a clearly informed manner. And, and while measuring is really important, and a lot of leaders are going to want to jump to numbers and metrics yeah. around making sure there's impact, monitoring is arguably even more important. Mm. Monitor the progress along the way and be comfortable and committed to shifting. Things aren't going the right way. And seek expertise. If there is an opportunity or an area that you simply do not have knowledge of, seek the expertise that will help you grow in your own conditioning mm. of that work. This will be so powerful to your employee population. You just named so many things. I, I'm wondering if there are other things that you've seen companies do within the last year that have been equally as impactful. Is there anything that you didn't already name? Yeah, accountability is incredibly important. You know, there's many organizations, for example, Management Leadership for Tomorrow just announced an inaugural list today of a couple of companies that are a part of their Black Equity at Work Index, wow. um, of which Nike actually signed on to and was a part of that uh, group today. Congratulations. Thank you very much. It creates a big opportunity where you're looking at accountability internally and externally. What I love about this endeavor with MLT is there are so many companies that have made direct commitments to Black equity, whether it's in the form of community grant giving or community commitments, uh, commitments to growing representation across multiple levels in the organization, board representation, so on and so mm -hmm. forth. However, for a lot of companies, there's not a holistic measure to say, are all of these actions actually working or are they leading to the to an end result that we believe is going to have real power and real impact for, for teams? And that is where the, the Black Equity at Work Index proves truly impactful. Similar to the Corporate Equality Index and what that work has led in partnership with the Human Rights Campaign at driving greater equity for LGBTQ plus populations, that's a really great endeavor for companies to look at taking on around positioning yourself to, to be accountable in the external marketplace. I have had so many conversations in the last year, but this is the most exciting for me. It really is. I, I really feel as if this is the topic and the focus that is going to change our worlds and our hearts and our entire beings. And Jarvis, I'm so interested in how you keep your energy and your enthusiasm and your gratitude for what you do and where you're going. You know, Sheila, it really does center around the concept of mindfulness. Uh, I spend mm -hmm. some time every single day meditating. And I think back on a lot of my early experiences growing up, to be honest with you. I was raised uh, by a single parent, by my mother in Houston, Texas. And when I think through my experiences of what it meant to be a Black man growing up in Texas, understanding what I now know as certain elements or nuances that were taught to me that weren't the common practice or experiences of other individuals, and coming into knowing and understanding that to some, 
what my body represents and the way that it's been positioned in both American politics, American government, and American media, it, it gives me a certain level of energy to want to keep pushing forward toward this broad concept of equity. Because you see, while I identify as cisgendered, I understand what experiences and the need to leverage my own privilege to impact the lives of transgender identified and non-binary identified populations. I know that as a black male, I have the opportunity to use my voice and, and my platform to impact the lives of black women who have just done so much for this country, for various states and for various corporations to help make real and significant impact. And so that is where my grace comes from is knowing that I have been positioned to have a platform that can truly change the lives and experiences for others and just getting comfortable and willing to enable that to come to life. Thank you, Jarvis. Thank Jarvis you. Sam, our guest today. Thank you again. I appreciate it so much. If you're listening on a platform where you can give us a thumbs up, please do. We want to thank our sponsors all at our website at Beyond Well with Sheila Hamilton. And once again, make it a great day. Bye-bye.